let's uh, take a look at those disciplines. This is, again, what um, we are trying to call all the men of Grace Bible Church to. Um, these are like spiritual disciplines, biblical leadership disciplines um, that we think men in their homes and in the church should uh, be all about, be disciplined with. And it all starts with discipline number one, the heart, right? This is not something you can play leapfrog over. You can't play leapfrog over your own heart. And what we mean by this is you have to shepherd your heart to the word of God in order to meet with God in the word. Um, it's not enough to just read your Bible and check it off. It's not enough to just be in your Bible to um, because you know you've got to put together a lesson or you've got to teach. It's not enough to be in the Word of God to merely um, win an argument that you're going to have with somebody the next day. Um, you have to come to the Word of God. It needs to be worship. So you, you discipline yourself to drag your heart before the Word of God so that you can meet with God as he has revealed himself in the word. Um, that's ground floor. That's everything. If you do that, you are then prepared for really anything that will come your way. Um, you are the kind of man that you need to be. You're a man who's met with God. You are full of God. You, um, His word, Christ's word, is richly dwelling in you. Um, you are ready for the day. You are ready for relationships. You are ready for the gospel to come forth from you. Uh, so that's so crucial. Um, the Pharisees loved the word. Um, they had lots of commentary that they added to the word. Uh, they made themselves appear that the word was very important, and yet their hearts were very far from God. It is possible for men to be about the word. It is possible for men to be about ministry, but have their hearts be far from God. It, it's just the nature of, of what we are as sinners. And even in this wonderful new mixed condition that God has put us in, where we are new creatures in Christ, and yet indwelling sin remains, you have to discipline your heart. You have to discipline your mind to come to God's word. And that's the difference between the guy in the church who will sit and take up space um, and the guy who will actually lead people. Is that guy knows who's going to lead people. He knows that I must meet with God. I must draw near to God. And the best place, the only place to go is God's word where he has revealed himself. So that's what we want is men who... Are, are, are that way. Men who will shepherd their hearts to meet with God in his word. When you are that, we move to discipline two. And as you are that, we move to discipline two, which is the home. And uh, so we then want to make sure that the first place that you have an impact with your heart for God is in your home, your household relationships. And we know how easy it is for men to play leapfrog over their households, right? Uh to be very concerned about other things, work, and even when it comes to ministry, to be eager to want to teach and lead ministries in the church or in parachurch ministries, and the household gets kind of left in the dust. Um, but God's word puts a premium on um, households and household relationships. And uh, you need to be men who actually discipline yourself and discipline your time that you're going to create time for you to be in your household with your the people you live with. If you're a single guy, 
you need to start practicing that now with the, with the with the roommates that you have, um, so that when you get the forever roommate, it's not a, 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 a whiplash <coughs> event in your life. Uh, start caring for the people that you live with now with the gospel. Make an impact there. There needs to be a gospel aroma in your home. Um, people need to have a sense who live with you, who relate with you in your household. They need to have a sense that this is a man of God. He meets with God. God's word is central to his life and to everything he does in this home. If you're married, that's what you want your wife to, to think and, 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 and know about you. Um, you want your children to know that. You want roommates to know that about you. Okay, A woman um, who is going to put her life, if you're a single guy, and a woman is going to put her life under yours, uh, if she's my daughter or if I'm talking to the single gal, I'm saying you find that kind of man who's shepherding his heart, who's eager to meet with God in his word, and then, oh my goodness, you get under him and you, you live in his house with him. That's a man to marry. Um, it's a good place. People will benefit in your household um, if you are that kind of man. When that is happening, as that is happening, we then move to discipline three. That kind of a man is ready to step into the lives of people and to minister the gospel to people in the church, outside the home, wherever he may be. Okay, That's the place to go. <clears throat> Oftentimes what happens is, as we've talked about already a little bit, a man will jump into ministry in a church because churches are always desperate for help and for leadership and for ministry. And a guy comes in and he shows a little energy, a little uh, interest, maybe some, some ability, and they grab him right away and he starts serving. And boy, he's serving and, and it's exciting what you see happen when people are willing. And then after a while, it's very possible that if he's not shepherding his heart and he's not concerned about his household relationships, an explosion takes place, a moral explosion takes place in his home uh, or in his own heart, his own life. And next thing you know, uh, the ministry is, is tragically impacted because the church didn't do their homework and the man didn't do his homework. They were content to play leapfrog over their own hearts and uh, do those things. So uh, pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your household relationships and step into the lives of people in the church and outside your home. Um, discipline four is on the qualifications. And if you'll look at uh, any of the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3 or for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you'll find basically that all of those character qualities and abilities are all tied to whether or not the man knows and, and disciplines his heart to know God in the word, uh, whether or not he's uh, taking care of his household relationships. Does he manage his own household well? Um, so we point you to looking at the deacon qualifications in particular, but also the elder qualifications too. Um, in fact, I think our next time together, we actually start in on deacons. Um, so our last meeting in January, the second one of this month, we'll start looking at uh, Acts 6 and uh, 1 Timothy 3. Discipline 5 is called the hermeneutic. And what we're wanting to do is uh, hermeneutics is, is uh, the rules of interpretation. Uh, what we want to do is we want to start exposing you uh, to what the elders at Grace Bible Church believe is the way to interpret the Word of God. Um, we have a, a, a certain method that we try to go through and, and hold to and, and think that God's word needs to stand, that, that each passage needs to have uh, the opportunity to speak for itself. Um, the author's intent 
in a, an Old Testament passage needs to stand and, and say all that it says, and, and, but we always read it forward is, is kind of the, the phrase that we use. Uh, you want to read your Bible forward, not backwards. You don't want to override Old Testament texts with New Testament truth. You don't want to override New Testament texts with Old Testament truth. You want to let each communicate exactly what was intended by the author, and then we piece all of those interpretations together and allow each text to speak on its own. Um, so you have to be really careful with that. Um, we want to begin to expose you to that. Well, the last three meetings of this year will be all about the, the hermeneutic that we try to employ here at, at Grace Bible Church. Uh, then the last discipline, six, is you are men who are a part of Grace Bible Church and not another local church someplace else. And we have a, a vision, a, a biblical vision and a gospel purpose that we try to set before us as, as a church. And so we want you to know what the biblical vis- vision and gospel purpose is of this church so that you can be the spiritual leader that this church needs you to be. So that's what we're, we're after. Your main homework in this um, in build is, you know, we, we give you a, a handout every time, and it, it's, it's pretty basic kinds of stuff, but it's hard questions sometimes to, to think through and go home and, and ask questions of people you live with and stuff like that. Uh, you have that level of homework, but your, your main homework, as a reminder, is we want you to be reading through the Bible in a year. Um, and for some of you, I know that's a, that's a, a, a challenge because you're, you're studiers. You're studiers of God's Word. You love to study God's Word, and we don't want you to stop studying God's Word. And, but reading through the Bible in a year is not studying through the Bible in a year. Studying and reading are two wonderful compliments. They're not the same thing. One is flying over the land at a high altitude to get a, a view of one end of it to the other. Um, and when you do that, you don't put an expectation on yourself that you have to notice every little detail in a forest, on a, in a path in a forest. You know, know that the forest is over there. That's what reading does. You're, we're asking you to read a lot of chapters a day, about four chapters a day to do that. Studying is, I'm now going to go on that path, and I'm going to walk slowly, and I'm, I'm only interested in this path right now, I'm not concerned that there might be a big lake over there or way down over that way. Right now, I'm just looking at this path. And a lot of us, that's what we do. We like to get into a passage. We like to just dig down deep. Don't stop doing that. Don't hear me now say that's not important. It's very important. What we're asking you to do is add to that. Because God has so much to say in the Old Testament about your heart, about your condition, about who he is. Um, and little obscure books, big ob- obscure books like Ezekiel, that you don't even, it's so hard to fear. God has so much to reveal about himself there and about what man is like and what he, he has much to say about your heart. If all you ever do is study Ephesians and James and maybe the Gospel of John and you read the Psalms and you like Proverbs and then you just do that all over again for the rest of your life, you are missing what God has revealed about himself. You need to read your Bible. In fact, we hope it will be something that you'll begin to do every year for the rest of your life. You'll just read the Bible every year. So we want to start encouraging you in that direction so that you get all of who God is in the Word. Um, it would be, and, and, boy, you can't think of that as a, as a microwave or a drive through thing, fast food drive through It just It takes time. But can you imagine after 10 years that maybe you've read 
the Old Testament 10 times, maybe the New Testament 20 times. Can you imagine that? That's what you need to have a, a vision for, and that's what you need to discipline yourself toward, that you, you'd be a man that you'd, you'd, know the, you'd know the Old Testament better. You'd know the New Testament well. Um, with that in mind, we want to encourage you. You feel overwhelmed by all of that? Just being a man to, to discipline your heart well? I'll tell you what, I feel that way. Um, this, is, this is something you never graduate from, guys. You, you never arrive at this. Nobody's going to hand you a diploma and say, you know what, you, you discipline your heart now. You shepherd your heart exactly the way you should. Good job. Move on to something else now. You'll, you'll never be that way. And, and when you, if you've lived a portion of your life maybe not being as focused in on this as you should be, when you first are being made aware of it, um, it can be really discouraging. Because you, you, you tend to see everything that you're not. But that you want to be. And this is where we want to just encourage you guys. Look, don't give up. If, if you went from maybe reading your Bible one or two days a week, but this year now it's, it's three or four days a week, praise God. That is good. I keep pressing on. Don't give up. Don't stop. If you stop reading and you get behind in your reading plan, don't feel like you've got to make up the 20 chapters you missed today. Start with where today is in your Bible reading and, and just resolve to, again, trust and read right from there. Okay? Don't give up. Talk to each other. Lean on each other. Ask for help. Um, read the Bible together. It's a great thing to do. Um, but, but don't give up and don't be discouraged. And if you are discouraged, will you please, come, talk to, come talk to Tom or to me, to Scott, to Eric, whoever. But, but don't, don't just sit there in your discouragement, okay? Um, so keep pressing on. Uh, you need to become a man who uh, is consistently in God's word to meet with him. And you can become that by God's grace. And we want to help you do that, okay? What we're going to do is... Um, basically just walk through it and make some observations. This is not a, a sermon or it's not structured like a sermon. It's just, let's just read it and um, take a look at what it's saying. See if we can make some observations on it. W- one thing to think about here is, is obviously every believer when you read Paul it can be tempting to say well that's Paul and he was an apostle and, you know, I'm not an apostle, I'm not even a missionary, you know, I probably never will be, so this describes Paul, and I'll read it because I know I should read it, but that's about all that I'm going to do, is I'm going to read it. What you need to do is, is um, you need to let who Paul is and what he is as an apostle, but also as a believer like you, you need to let it drag you in his direction. Uh, you're not going to apply this, what Paul is, in the same way that Paul did, because you're not an apostle. Um, you're not a, a frontier missionary like he is when he went to you know, Thessalonica. But you need to let it drag you in that direction. And, and I also would say that this is, this is really good. You know, whether you stay at Grace Bible Church the rest of your life or whether you go to another church or, or several other churches or end up becoming a, a church planner yourself, 
This is what you want to look for in those who are leading in the gospel. If you want to be a missionary, if you want to be a pastor someday, you want to look for these characteristics in yourself. Um, because this is what this is the kind of man that God uses to help start churches and proclaim the gospel. So as we look at these six gospel-centered truths for ministry, you need to ask your, be asking yourself, are these gospel-centered truths true in my life? God, might you work in my life in a way that these would become gospel-centered truths characteristic of me? So let's pray. Let's ask God for help as we look at his word, and then we'll read verses 1 to 12, and we'll dig in, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for, again, uh, reminding us this morning that you have revealed yourself to us in it. And Lord, we long to see you. We long to see um, what you have to reveal about yourself in it to us this morning. Please help us. Draw near to us as we um, draw near to you and your word. And um, help us, God, to humbly place your word over us and sit under its authority. May it speak into our lives and touch everything it wants to touch. Rearrange what it wants to rearrange. Cleanse what needs to be cleansed. Uh, Father, help us to trust you. You are trustworthy. You are good. And you promise to finish what you have begun in us, Lord. So please help us to sit humbly under your word and let you have your way in our lives. And so God, we seek your face. We ask for your help. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12 this morning. I'll read it for us. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you uh, not only the gospel of God, but also our, very, our, our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Alright, so we want to make six gospel-centered truths or observations on these truths for ministry. Number one. Ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. There's your first blank. We want to engage people with the gospel. That's what your ministry must first and foremost be concerned with. What what else is there to put first and foremost in front of you? Now, what I want to do underneath that in verses 1 to 2 
is I want to talk about three fundamentals of a gospel-engaging ministry that are there in verses 1, 2, and, and well, in the first two verses there. Okay? Uh, so here's the first one. Gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. So you fill in those two blanks there. You see that? Gospel ministry, when you're bringing the gospel first and foremost to people, it is never hollow, it is never wanting. That's what Paul says in verse 1. Brethren, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. Vain means hollow, it means empty, it means it, it was. it's found wanting of purpose, uh, it's found wanting in earnestness. What Paul is saying is, no, our time was not marked, our time with you was not marked by emptiness. It was marked by fullness. Why? Because we spoke the gospel to you. Because Paul was gospel-centered, he was had a gospel-engaging ministry. So gospel ministry is never found hollow or wanting. Um, so if you want to ask yourself a question, and by the way, your homework is just a compilation of all these questions on the blue sheet, or no, is it blue? What color is it? It's green. Is it green? Yeah, it's green one, this one here. Um, it's just a compilation of all the questions from the study sheet. And so we can address some of these as we go through. What would happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central? Well, if he says that, well, we came to you, it wasn't empty, and it's because we're a gospel-centered people, well, what's going to happen if the gospel is not central? Your relationships are what? Empty. Oh, did we not punch them? Really? Wow. Sorry about that. It's a good thing we meet in the library that has our three whole parts. So if you want to pass it around, you can do that. It's great. Thanks, guys, for doing that. Does anybody need it? We've all used it already. You have? <laughs> Where was I? I'm sorry. That's great. Uh, all right, so gospel ministry is never hollow, nor is it found wanting. Um, second, fundamental of a gospel-engaging ministry. Gospel ministry requires boldness. You fill in that blank there. Gospel ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. And this takes us to our first of many sandwiches this morning. Um, I love this in, in this chapter here. Paul does this over and over. Watch how verse 2 begins and watch how it ends. And so when I, when I say a sandwich, and I'll, I'll what I mean is you'll see in, in, in the verse, there's a, like the top piece of bread, there's the, there's the bottom piece of bread, and these two say almost the same thing. And then in the middle is where you have the nugget of truth that you need to watch for. Now, now watch in verse 2 how you have that in your top piece and in your bottom piece. How does the verse begin? Uh, we, had been, we had already suffered and been mistreated. Do you see that? And then how does it end? Much opposition. All right, I wonder what he's trying to say. Suffered and mistreated, lots of opposition. Well, what does he say in the middle? Because that's, that's what we want to get. Uh, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. And so here's the fundamental. Gospel ministry requires boldness to speak, even though you might be surrounded by opposition. Right? Now, um, I'll, I'll refer you to, you can write down if you want, Acts 16, uh, basically about verse 19 through 17, verse 10. That's when Paul was in Philippi, and uh, that was where the girl was bringing her slave owners much 
business because she was uh, demon-possessed and she was able to tell fortunes and things like that. And Paul brought an end to that, and then they started beating Paul. They threw him in jail. There was an earthquake. A uh, soldier guarding him was about to kill himself, and he ends up getting saved. And then Paul had to run on to Thessalonica from there. Uh, suffered and been mistreated. As a Roman citizen, he was mistreated. He was beaten with rods without um, any trial or any um, formal hearing. And they just wanted him to leave town. And, and so he left in that opposition. And even in the midst of much opposition in Thessalonica, he spoke boldly the gospel. Um, how much trouble exists in your relationship because of the gospel? Um, or what might be some reasons for the absence of trouble? I'm convicted by this. That I just There doesn't seem to be a lot of trouble in my relationship. Whatever trouble there is in relationships I have is not because of the gospel. It's usually because of me. And, and I, th- I think that the case may be for me that, well, the gospel may not be as central as I would like to think it is. The more central the gospel becomes, um, there's probably going to be some conflict in your life. Um, where I do have it at, at places is, is, is among family where they don't maybe really want to hear the gospel. And so there's some conflict there. But what about for you? Do you, do you see that there's conflict? There, there, there's, there should probably be some. Um, you don't go out looking for conflict, just to make conflict and, and to be proud of that then. But, it, but if we're, we're living out the gospel and proclaiming the gospel where we live, we're probably going to have some opposition, don't you think, in this world? Uh, it would be good for you to give some thought to that in those questions. Um, what do you do? Well, another question I have down there. What happens when opposition comes in your gospel ministry to someone? What do you do then? It would be good for you to give some thought. What, what should I do and what am I doing um, when opposition comes? Am I handling it well? Am I handling it in a way that's pleasing to God? Let's do the third fundamental of gospel-engaging ministry. Gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. So you feel in boldness again there in verse 2. You see that? We had boldness in our God. Boldness in our God. Now that word boldness is actually, a, is, I think it's pretty a, a pretty interpretive way to, um, they, they, it was very, it's just very interpretive. Does anybody, does ESV say something else in the middle of verse 2? We have the boldness in our God. What does it say? Okay. Same thing. Anybody else have a, a different version that says something different? Literally, it just it just means we had all speech. And and this word is only used in the New Testament in uh, gospel proclamation settings. But it what it means is Paul was in a state of mind where his words just flowed freely. There was no restraint on him to just let the words come out of his mouth. It was like the floodgates had been opened and he could just speak the gospel. It just flowed out of him. No restraint. And so it's the idea of, and so the NAS says boldness because that meant that there was just this ability to speak regardless of the situation, opposition and suffering and mistreatment all around him. Um, So despite the trouble, Paul felt like, you know what? I can just let this come out. I can just let this come out. Um, And this boldness, that free speech, that all speech, just being able to say everything that's on your mind, it is in 
our God, he says in verse 2. Do you see that? We have the boldness, and it's in our God. And that's because what's being said here is Paul saying, this was not a natural ability. I, I don't have this in my personality to just be a courageous guy. This freeness of speech, it was in our God. There was such a, a, a union between Paul and his God, our God, that he was just, he was ready to talk. But wait a minute, he's surrounded by what? Opposition. If, if that were me, I think I'd probably be tempted to close the valve, put the gate up, change my language, um, codify it a little bit, make it a little more PC. But not Paul. You know why? Because conflict or comfort, neither one are uh, impacting his speech. What impacts his speech? God. He has boldness, and it's not in his comfort situations, in, in, in comfortable situations. It's not in the lack of, uh, of conflict. It's, it's in his God. So in the midst of lots of suffering and mistreatment, he lives very close to God. But what needs to happen, I have a question there for you, what needs to happen daily to increase your God-given boldness to speak the gospel? You know what I think it is? I think it's discipline number one. Shepherd your heart to be near to God. Be near to God. Walk in nearness to God. Uh, Draw near to him and you will find yourself as you're living out his presence in your life, you'll be more aware of him than you will be any opposition that comes to your life. Mark. Yeah, I, I think that's a. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. Um, an example, I think, is First Corinthians two. Paul says, "I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling." And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the spirit and power. And, and he actually has, um, he addresses later, it might be in 2 Corinthians, where the word out on the street was that the Corinthians thought his speech was contemptible. He just, he's not a good speaker. He's not a, a persuasive, flowery, flowing... Paul says... I, I was trembling. I, look, if you've gotten beaten up and down one side of the Roman Empire, you, you know, wondering if you're going to get smacked again, you might tremble a little bit. But his boldness is not in the fact that he looks all polished like a, a soldier who doesn't have any scratches or dents on his armor. He, his boldness is that he still opens his mouth. Seems like our use of the word boldness is more yeah, as I apply this to my life, it's, uh, to, I think it's like you said about how we use the word boldness because it 
That's good. Some over here again. NIV says dare in spite. Oh, cool. Dare in spite of it. That's good. Thank you. All right. How about second gospel center truth from ministry? Number two. This is on your second page, I believe. Flip over now. Two blanks to fill in here. In in a gospel-centered ministry, God is the primary audience and influence. He's the primary audience and the primary influence. And what I want to do is I want to walk through verses 3 to 6 twice with you. One time walking through looking for the fact that he is the primary audience. Okay, And the proof then, I have four proofs for you that he is the primary audience in gospel ministry. All right? Do you understand how this is working here? So here's the first proof. God is the origin of our message and mission. Those are the two blanks we're going to fill in. God is the origin of our message and our mission. Okay? If he is the primary audience, then that means the message comes from him and our mission comes from him. And that is seen in verses 3 and in verse 6. Um, verse 3 states it negatively. Here, let me tell you where our exhortation does not originate from. Here's where it does not come from. Our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. If you back right up into verse 2, actually our message, our gospel comes from from God. It's the gospel of God. Down in verse 6, you can see at the end, he talks about himself as being an apostle of Christ. So his mission as an apostle doesn't come from Paul. He's not an apostle of his own ideas. He's an apostle of Christ. So the fact that God is the primary audience is seen in the fact that our message originates from him. It's the gospel of God. And our mission originates from him. It did so for Paul. He was an apostle of Christ. Now we are sent ones as well, not of the same quality as as Paul is, as an apostle with a capital A. But we certainly can be apostles, sent ones, in a lowercase a kind of way. Okay? Uh, Second proof that God is the primary audience. If he's the primary audience, then that means that God tests us to entrust us with the gospel. And that's verse 4. So you can fill in those two blanks. God tests us to entrust us. And this is a little uh, a little nerve-wracking to me, <laughs> that God tests us to entrust us. <coughs> verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak... Not us pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Now, at the beginning of the verse is the is the verb have been approved, and at the end of the verse is another verb examines. They're actually the same word, um, and this brings us then to our second sandwich. Okay, so again, what you're looking for in verse four is how does the verse start, and how does the verse end, and those two things will be similar ideas, and then there will be something in the middle you want to watch for. So look at the beginning. How does verse four begin? We have been approved by God. We've been examined by God. We've been tested by God. It's the verb dakamazo. It means uh, that you are being tested for the purpose of refining. It would be what they did um, when, when you were purifying metal. You'd have a chunk of metal you'd find. You would just put it under the fire, and it would boil. And all of the impurities would come up to the top, and the smelter would then take off the the dross on the top. He would keep taking off the impurities that would rise to the top. And um, the idea was he he would keep looking in it until he could see his own reflection. And that would be say that the impurities are out and I see me now reflected in it. And now I have 
purity. Now, he's not boiling the metal because he wants to destroy it because it's bad metal. He wants to get out of it everything that he can get out of it. He wants to make it pure. The idea with this word to examine or to test is to not test us for the purpose of showing our failures. It's for the purpose of getting rid of them so that we can be all that it is that God intends for us to be. It's positive testing. Is it pleasant? Uh, No, it hurts. But it's not for the purpose of destroying you, deconstructing you. It's for the purpose of purifying you so that you can be a better man than you were before the testing. That's the, the, the two pieces of bread here. It's to be examined in that way by God, to be approved by God. He is the one who examines our hearts. Well, then what's the, what goes on in between that examination in verse 4? Uh, we've been entrusted with the gospel and we speak it. See, we, we have to be tested so that we can be entrusted with the gospel. Um, I've got a quote there for you from Leon Morris. He says, Since the gospel is of divine origin, no one may take it upon himself to proclaim it. You don't just look at this message and go, Yeah, yeah, you know, I'd like to attach myself to that message and become a herald of it. I'll be the one to proclaim it. No, um, God chooses his messengers. And he tests them before committing the gospel to their trust. And so for every one of us who wants to be a proclaimer of the message of God, this is sobering. Remind yourself that if I want to proclaim God's word, there may be some testing that is going to come into my life because God wants to clean me up, to make me a purer instrument in his hands, a pure mouthpiece. So do you want to be entrusted with the gospel? Well, prepare yourself for some testing. Third proof that God is the primary audience, God watches us and is always present. God watches us. He is always present. That's verse 5. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness. He says that again in verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. Paul had an awareness that God was present. He was aware of God's eyes on him as much as he was aware of the fact that men were watching. That's proof that God is the primary audience in gospel ministry. Last proof, we won't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. That's verse 6. We won't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. So if God is the primary audience, and I'm going into gospel ministry thinking, God is the only one that matters, he's the only audience that matters, if I have any authority in it as a messenger giving a message, it's not about me being noticed as that messenger. Because God's the primary audience. Paul says, Nor did we see glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our weight. We, we had a weightiness being apostles of Christ. Look, there's not very many apostles of Christ in the world. Not everybody has seen the risen Lord like I have and been commissioned by him. But Paul didn't say, look, this isn't about me coming and throwing my apostolic weight around. We weren't after glory from you or from any man. And that's proof that in Paul's mind, all that mattered is God is here. God is the audience in gospel ministry. So we just walked through verses 3 to 6, thinking about the, that, that God is the primary audience. Let's talk about how he's now the primary influence in gospel ministry. 
four quick um, points here. Um, if God is the primary influence in gospel ministry, then that means he, one, or first, he purifies my exhortations. You can fill that blank in. He purifies my exhortations. Verse 3. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Um, that's a way of saying, look, our exhortation has been has been cleaned up. It doesn't come from these kinds of impure things. Um, if God is influencing my gospel ministry, uh, my exhortations are pure. If God is influencing gospel ministry, that means he opens my mouth. Verse 4. You've been entrusted with the gospel and we speak. If God is influencing us, we can't be silent, guys. We won't be silent. We will open our mouths and we will speak. And if God is influencing us in ministry, then that means he drops my mask in ministry. Number three, he drops my mask. You can fill that blank in. And that's verse five. We never came with flattering speech. Listen, we, when you, when you, <laughs> if you flatter somebody, you're telling them one thing, but that ain't the thing. Nice tie. And in your mind, you're thinking something completely different, right? So you're, you're covering from them something that you don't want them to know. Or maybe you want them to know, but in a really backhanded kind of way. Uh, he says we didn't come with a pretext for greed either. Pretext, the, the idea there is, is, is you, to put a mask on. I, I want to come to you and I want to portray to you one thing, but really what I'm after is your money. But I don't want you to see that, that I'm after your money. So I'm going to put this mask on and act like something else. So in either case with flattery or with a pretext for greed, um, there's something that you don't want to be seen. And the interesting thing is, is uh, we only do that when we know it's wrong. We, cut, we know it's wrong and we're putting a mask on because we know that once they see it for what it is, it's wrong. We just, but we don't want to turn away from what's wrong. Uh, we want to just cover it up and act like it's something else. So, but if God is influencing us, we don't use flattery and we don't try to put a mask on and, and cover things up. Okay. Lastly, if God is uh, influencing our ministry, it means that he humbles my use of authority. Verse 6. Paul, listen to these weighty things. Here's a guy who comes into town and, and, you, and you find out he is an apostle of Messiah. The one promise in the Old Testament that, that, that Israel waited for and waited for and waited for has finally come and has now sent his messengers out. And his message is not a gospel of man, it's the gospel of God. Those are pretty weighty things to be bound up in one man. That's just not a, any kind of a human being. That, that's, a, that's a special human being. But God is influencing Paul's ministry, and so that means that even with such weightiness, with such authority that he did have, he says, um, we didn't assert our authority. We didn't use our authority in a way that would have swung it around and made you all feel that we're weighty. We have authority. I have a statement there for you. Any authority I might possess in ministry is not about me. 
authority and ministry is always to be exercised under the approval and pleasure and witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. Like you, you're not trying to flex any authority muscle in the gospel. And you'll feel it. I mean, how, you guys feel this in your home. You're trying to lead your family. You're trying to lead your children. And your, your children, your family, maybe at times are completely oblivious to your leadership. What do you want to make them feel sometimes? Uh, let me remind you who I am. <laughs> I am your father. As Bill Cosby said, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. <laughs> right? Right? Sometimes we want them to feel that. We, we, we speak to them in a way that um, we want our words to make them feel that, hey, I'm in charge. And Paul is saying, you know, if anybody had a place to say, hey, we're kind of uncommon guys who've come into town, they never made them feel that way. That's pretty amazing. See, because the gospel doesn't make you use authority that way. The gospel being powerful inside you makes you use authority in a kingdom way. And here is Jesus Christ. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Okay, here's the one who has all authority. And how does the gospel lead him? The one who has all authority? Um, he took on the form of a bondservant, a slave, Philippians 2. He was in the form of God, and he took on the form of a slave. That's what the form of God does? It takes on the form of a slave? Yeah, that's what authority does. That's what God does. That's who God is. He's a humble God in Jesus Christ. And when he saves sinners and draws them to himself and sends them out in his namesake, they are humble leaders as well. So, third gospel-centered truth. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. A motherly gentleness. This one will test your manhood. Verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. When was the last time you thought of, you know, what's the way a mother is? That's what I want to be like. That's what Paul said. Um, the verse starts off with a but, meaning there's going to be a contrast here. So in contrast to men who might have thrown their weight around and their authority around, let me contrast. Actually, we, we prove to be gentle among you. Um, any burden that or weightiness that they might have thrown in front of their people. They, they didn't want to throw it in front of them. And you know what a mother never does? A mother, a good mother, I should say, doesn't weigh her baby down. My um, um, sister-in-law, what is it when your wife's brother's wife, who is that to you? It doesn't matter. That girl just had a baby. And uh, we got to see the little one last night. Is it my sister-in-law? My sister-in-law. Just had a, a baby, a little guy. He's like a week old, and so we got to to, to see him. Nobody, no mother, uh, burdens a little baby. A mother does everything to make the baby not feel any burden. Um, to be gentle. Um, 
And, and the idea here could be possibly in this verse that Paul is talking about himself saying, we prove to, to become babies among you. That's one of the possibilities of um, what is being said here in, in proving to be gentle among you, um, like a nursing. And then you wouldn't translate it mother. You would say it like a, like a nursed one. Um, I, I don't think that's what it is. I think he's most likely talking about a nursing mother. But again, the, the, either way, it doesn't matter. Um, both are a stark contrast to somebody who would be thrown away to them. Whether you're, we, we became like babes among you, or whether it's we became like a nursing mother among you, both of those examples are in stark contrast to men who would come and throw their gospel weight around and make you feel it. Um, you know, a, a mother doesn't set a table for her infant and say, now, you figure out a way to get up to this table. What a mother does is a mother comes down to the level of the child or brings the child up to the level of the mother and a nursing mother makes herself accessible to the baby. The baby can't do anything for himself. And Paul says, we were like that with you. We made ourselves accessible to you. We came down to where you were. We met you where you were at. Hebert has a good um, statement here on this. He says, the idea is the condescension of the true Christian pastor. Look, for your sake, just cross off the word pastor. It's still true. The idea is the condescension of the true Christian who is willing to put himself on the level of others which is the essence of sympathy. It's the application of the principle of the incarnation. And let's see, becoming a babe. Hmm. Oh yeah, Jesus. To come to our level of weakness, to meet us where we're at. You see, gospel ministry carries out that kind of, of incarnation itself. Calvin says, a mother in nursing her children manifests a certain rare and wonderful affection Inasmuch as she spares no labor, she spares no trouble, she shuns no anxiety, and she is never wearied out by her constant diligence and attention. The mother makes herself accessible in the sweetest, most tender and loving and humble way. The question I would have for you would be, how well are you, not only in just assessing the spiritual level of another, oh, yeah, he, that guy, he's, yeah, he's really young, yeah, he's really young in the Lord. I mean, it's one thing to be able to assess it. It's another thing to say, and now I will take myself where I am and I will accommodate myself to where my brother is so that I can help him grow. See, that's what gospel ministry needs to be about, is, is that we would ha it would have a motherly gentleness that would say, I will come to the level of wherever anybody is so that I might help them, meet them where they're at to help them grow, to nurture them, to disciple them. Um, that's what you need to be looking for in yourself. You want to be a part of the gospel ministry where it wants to, wherever it's going to go out? Well, this needs to be a, a quality in you that's growing and developing and becoming more and more prominent all the time. Um, Paul didn't restrict... Here, here's what's really tempting, guys, is for us. When, when we start getting a little smart theologically, um, you can tend to start wanting to hang out with other people who are smart theologically like you. And people who aren't as smart theologically as you, then the, the temptation can be like, well, it's an us and them 
kind of thing. And, and you really need to fight that um, so that the gospel doesn't produce an us and them mentality. The gospel just produces a, a, a really humble servant who is willing to interact with anybody who's not like you spiritually. I mean, the great dads, can I just talk to you for a second? I mean, your kids, hello? This is where we need to be, right? You, you come down to the level of your, your kids, where they're at spiritually speaking. Um, it doesn't matter how frustrated you are. It doesn't matter how any of that, it, what matters is that you just get down on their level and, and bring the gospel to them like a mother would. Fourth, gospel-centered truth. Number four, a gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for the people. Deep affection for the people. That's verse 8. And we come to another sandwich. Verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very our own lives because you have become very dear to us. How does the verse start off in verse 8? Yeah, look at that. Look what he says. He says, fond and affection for you. Boy, we, we just, lots of affection for you. How does the verse end? Oh, you are very dear to us. See how both parts say basically the same thing. And now what's in the middle? What does that surround? Oh, we were well pleased to impart the gospel and our lives. I think, you remember guys when we were back in verse 5 of chapter 1? Our gospel did not come to you in word only. See, Paul was concerned that it did come in it did come in word, but it just didn't come in words only. Paul was very concerned about how also the gospel came just in their own lives, in, in Paul and the missionaries' lives to them. Wow, you, you guys, you were dear to us. We love you. Paul doesn't even know these people. Paul's on the run from Philippi because he got beaten and had to leave town. But whatever happened there, the gospel produced in him a love and an affection for them. That's pretty amazing. Now, I want to I want to show you something. Go back to chapter two, verse one and two, and now watch this. Just kind of listen to listen for what Paul might be saying here about how the gospel came in verses one and two. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. After we had already suffered and we had been mistreated in Philippi, as you know. We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You could read that and go, man, that's a guy who, it didn't matter, come, you know, hell or high water, I speak the gospel to you. I'm a, here I come with the gospel. You could think that way. And I think he's trying to say something strong like that. But you get to verse 8, and he's saying, man, we just had such a fond affection for you. You'd become very dear to us. And you know what? We wanted to impart the gospel to you, but we also wanted to give you our lives. These things go together. There's gospel content that you give, but there's gospel care that you need to give. Um, And that completes the idea. The goal is to give people the gospel, guys. In your life, the goal is to give them the content of the gospel. But that is never disconnected from a relationship, that you need to have a caring relationship for the people. And you'll have to watch yourself. Uh, We all probably tend towards one, maybe um, overuse or exaggeration of the one to the exclusion of the other. 
Some of us are, are more like, look, it doesn't, I don't care if we ever hang out again, but you're going to know the gospel. You're going to know the contents of the gospel when I'm done with you. That's not the way that Paul was. Some of us might be more on the relational side and be like, you know, I just I love hanging out with you, and I've, we've been hanging out together for a long time. Never shared the gospel with you yet, but man, I just I love you. I want to, you know, that's not Paul either. It is both. I give to you the gospel, but I impart to you my life also. Um, so you want to be working to keep these things in balance. Um, how is question for you here? How is our effectiveness with the gospel impacted by the level? or the absence of affection for others. I mean, how easy is it to bring the gospel to people you, you don't have affection for compared to how easy is it to bring the gospel to people that you do have affection for? How does affection for somebody, somebody being very dear to you, how does that impact what you say, how you say it, when you say it? Hopefully it makes a, an impact, right? But there needs to be gospel love for people as well. So hold on to these two kind of like gospel prongs. Um, you've got gospel content and you've got gospel care. And you want to make sure that you've got both of them going on. Don't sacrifice one for the other. Don't be content with one only. Uh, fifth, gospel-centered truth. Number five, a gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. Keeps the path to the gospel clear. Verse 9. He says, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. His main point there is we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. But you remember, guys, uh, there was labor, there was hardship, we worked night and day, and all of that was for a purpose. We didn't want to burden you. Uh, and, and I think he's primarily speaking financially here. We as a, as a frontier missionary, and you know what we mean when we say that, he's on the, he's out where nobody, no other Christians are. He's bringing the gospel. He's the first Christian stepping into these areas. He's on the frontier. In those settings, Paul practiced most often not taking any money from those he brought the gospel to. As they became more established and a church was formed uh, and they wanted to give to him, he would receive that from most of the churches that he was with. But in Thessalonica, he didn't want there to be any obstacle in the path of him bringing the gospel to them. And so he didn't want there to be any kind of burden that they would feel financially that, well, wait, before he, you know, if he's going to continue to be here and speak to us the gospel, we need to help. We need to buy him some food. We need to give him some shelter. He's just like saying, we didn't do any of that. We took it upon ourselves. We wanted to take that burden that you might have felt and we want to move it out of the path so that all we had was a clear path to get to you with the gospel. To do that, we had lots of labor and hardship. In fact, we worked night and day. In small group, we talked about this on a Thursday night. Why does he say night and day? What do you think? Why not day and night? We work day and night. Those of you in small group have to be quiet. Why does he say night and day? Anybody have a guess? All right, somebody from small group. Do you remember? They would start uh, their work at night so they could be done in the day at that time. Yeah, the most likely what was going on is, is he would be, they would begin their labors either very, very, very early in the morning or halfway through the night. 
so that when they worked even into part of the day, they could be finished and have the rest of the day to be able to minister the gospel and speak the gospel to people. Um, so probably didn't sleep a whole lot. But he did that to keep the path clear. He didn't want them to feel a burden. Um, Gospel-centered ministry likes to do that. Um, you know how funny it feels when there's a... a look, and you know, it, it, it's, it's a wrong thing for missionaries to not be well-funded. It is wrong. Missionaries should not have to worry about that. They should be well-supported. But there's something funny about a guy who makes people feel maybe a missionary who makes people feel that burden all the time. And um, he needs to be supported. He needs to be supported by the right people. He needs to receive support from the right people and not receive it and, and ask of it in a way that creates like this burden in front of people. Because that impacts the path of the gospel coming. So you need to be thoughtful. If, if you someday want to be a, you know, a, a missionary, you need to think really carefully about where support comes from, how you're going to go about it, um, that you have a life that, that demonstrates that, you know what, we're trustworthy with, with funds, we're, we're above reproach, and, um, and it's going to create a clear path to the people that you want to bring the gospel to. Um, it doesn't burden them. So... Sixth gospel, center truth, number six. Oh, I, want, I have a question for you before that. I'm going to ask this question. It, here's a way that I would think maybe we could apply this. <clears throat> Can you recall how an older, wiser believer personally made sacrifices so you could keep growing in the gospel? Um, I know when I first got saved, I was a mess. And yet I was surrounded by a couple of older, wiser believers who... Um, didn't make me feel like I had to run through an obstacle course to get to them. Um, there was no burden on me to do that. It was just, you know, they were just right there. They were accessible. And it was so helpful. Uh, they, they began to disciple me and help me to grow. Um, can you think of anybody who was like that in your life? There was no burdens placed on you. Uh, it was just very wide open path of accessibility to them. And and then the goal I hope that you'll begin to pray for is that if you don't if you are you are not if you are currently not that for somebody else, that you would become somebody like that for somebody else. That you would be the, maybe the older wiser Christian who can come alongside somebody who's more infant like in the gospel. And that you could do everything you could in your power to remove any Obstacles, so that they just have clear access to you. They can just come to you and and uh, access you at any point in the gospel. All right, last gospel-centered truth in verses 10 and 12. A gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. Transformation of life that is worthy of God. That's your blank transformation of life. And it takes us to our last sandwich. Look at the way verse... This time it's between verses uh, 10 and 12. 10 is the top loaf, a piece of bread. 12 is the bottom piece, and they're similar. Verse 10 says something that is similar to verse 12. 
And verse 11 is what's in between. What is verse 10 about? Well, it says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. We were, we were godly people. We, we lived our lives according to a right standard. We were above reproach. There weren't charges that could stick to us. Okay? Um, Paul is describing whose life in verse 10? His own, right? The quality of life that we had was, was an above reproach life. Devoutly, blamelessly, uprightly. That's how we lived. Verse 12. Whose life is under consideration? It's not Paul's, but whose? The Thessalonians. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom glory. Now just stop for a moment. The messengers, the sent ones, they have a transformed life. And the ones to whom they came who believed, what do they also have? What must they have? A transformed life. So gospel ministry is all about changed lives, transformation of life, us living it out before them, and those that we minister to being changed. It has to be. It's not gospel-centered if it's not interested in those things or is not seeing those things come to pass. So there's your top pieces, right? Now, what's going on in verse 11? We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children. It's a fatherly pursuit. That's what's going on in between the transformation of life. We, we had a fatherly pursuit of your changed life, of your transformation of life. So gospel-centered ministry, its primary goal is, is there has to be a changed life. And the way that you go after that changed life, Paul says, this time as he compares himself to a father. Like a father goes after his own children. The emphasis here is on individualness. Each one of you, in verse 11, is actually in an emphatic position in the sentence in Greek. And it means that um, Paul's primary ministry, as he's recollecting it and asking them to remember it, he's saying, look, it didn't come through mass conversion. We didn't have evangelistic rallies. They might have. They might have been able to speak publicly and to great numbers. But what he remembers is that, you know what, we, we had to spend time with each one of you. Yeah, you know, in a way like, you know, uh, like a father spends time with each one of his kids. A father doesn't look at his little brood and say, what a great club I have. No, he thinks he says, you know what, this one here, uh, when I really want to see that one grow, well, you know what I need to do? That one needs exhorting. And that means that one needs to really have an animated exhortation. But when I move to this one, you know what that one needs? That one needs encouraging, verse 11. Exhorting and encouraging. And that word encouraging there is more about just the tender side. Uh, this child, I'm, as, as his dad, I know this one needs some tenderness in the way the exhortation comes. And you know what this other one I have? Well, this one needs, verse 11, some imploring. They need to feel the, the solemnity, how solemn it is that what I'm asking them for. It's more kind of like the first one. And so the point is, Paul uses three different terms because Paul's thinking, as I was with you, you know, there are some people we had to encourage, there were some people we had to warn. In fact, he says this very thing over in chapter 5, verse 14. Look there. 
He's trying to pass along to them the very thing that what he did with them. He says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. You need to be able to have an individualized, personalized approach to each person because unruly people, they need to be warned, not encouraged in a soft kind of way. When you're unruly, you need a warning. And But when somebody's faint-hearted, don't, don't admonish them. And you need to know the difference. So you need to spend time enough. We talked about this, right, guys? You need to spend time enough with the people you're ministering with that you know, wait a minute, something's going on here in his life. What is it? You might first think, this guy's unruly. And you start to probe a little bit. You start to ask questions. You go, oh, my goodness. So glad I asked questions. Because what this guy has going on, he, I'm, I'm amazed he's still standing. You know what he needs? He needs encouragement instead of a warning. That's why I would have given him at first. But now I understand it. It's a little different. So the idea is there needs to be a personalized ministry. And that's what Paul is saying that he went through with him back in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. We, we were exhorting some of you. We were encouraging others of you. We were imploring others. And you know what that's like? That's like a father. A father does that with his kids. And again, the whole point of that is we with transformed lives were that way with you because your lives had to be changed. You need to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, just a side note. Look at verse 12. I love this. This has just blessed me this week big time. How is God described in verse 12? He is the God who what? Now listen to how I say it and tell me what's wrong with what I say. The God who called you. That's calls. What does he mean by that? Oh, it's the attention to the details. It's awesome in God's word. Don't miss it. Read slowly. Read carefully. What does he mean by God calls you? All the time. So this is not salvation's call that Paul is emphasizing. Uh, in, in sense of conversion to repent and believe this rather is right now <laughs> that's too funny I don't think we can talk that we should probably just close and pray um, his whole point here is, is, is God is continuing to call you into his own kingdom now wait a minute Did, didn't he already transfer us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Aren't we already there? Yes. And now what he's doing is he's continually calling you into greater and greater realizations of his kingdom reign over your life, and his glory in your life. The picture that comes to my mind and that I've been trying to think of is like when my kids were younger and um, their stride wasn't quite as big as mine, I always walked faster than them. And they always got tired sooner than me and I don't know how many times as we'd be walking I'd have to turn around and say what come on come on yeah <laughs> and that's exactly what God is saying to us come on slope no he doesn't do it but this is God who is tenderly calling us like a father saying to us more come on 
You need to see more. You need to know more. You need to experience more of, of, of his own kingdom reign in your life. What a great God is that that we have. Who's walking with us, continually calling us. He's not done yet with you. He's not done yet with the expression of his kingliness in your life. You must still be called into greater and greater alignment with his, with his will. And he won't stop until he's done. That's our God. All right, conclusion, the, big, the bigger picture here about a gospel-centered ministry. I'm going to give you two sets of words here. This is the inseparable, unbeatable combination in a gospel-centered ministry. Okay? For number one, it's proclamation. If you're going to have a gospel-centered ministry, you've got to be about the proclamation of the gospel. You have to be. Number two, down below, you can write down one of two different words or both of them. Incarnation or demonstration. You can put both of them if you want. Incarnation and demonstration. Now, I'm going to give a big qualifier here as I use these two sets of words because everybody is using these two, and I say everybody, evangelicalism is using proclamation, demonstration. They're using incarnational ministry. They're using it all the time, and, and it's being used so much now that if, when you hear it, you've really got to ask yourself questions. What do you mean by that? Um, and, and, and so it's not necessarily that it's bad. It's just now that I don't know, it's hard to tell what people mean by that. But you can definitely see Paul here in chapters 1 and 2, even up through just chapter 2, verse 12, that Paul was all about proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, he makes this evident over and over in, in verse 5 of chapter 1. Remember, he says, our gospel didn't come to you in word only. He's saying, oh, it came to you in word. It just didn't come to you in word only. So he was concerned to bring the gospel in the word. He talked about how in verse 6 they received the word. He says in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sent forth from you. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, we speak the gospel. In verse 4, he says, entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Um, he states it negatively. We didn't come with flattering speech. We didn't have that kind of speech. We had gospel speech. In verse 8, he says, We imparted to you not only the gospel, but we imparted to you our, our lives. And in verse 9, he says, We proclaim the gospel of God. Look, Paul was very much about the proclamation of the word of God. And gospel-centered ministry is going to make people open their mouths and actually proclaim Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Okay? The gospel-centered ministry is not going to stop there. If, if you learn anything from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, it's that Paul is saying, we didn't come to you, with, it didn't come to you in word only. You have to partner the word being proclaimed to people with the word being lived out among them, demonstrated. Paul equally drew heavy attention to the life-on-life -life <laughs> aspect of gospel ministry. It was measurable. How many times does Paul say, you know, you know, you recall, you remember, your witnesses. How many times does he say that? How could he say that? Because he knew his gospel ministry was a one life coming and rubbing up against another life. There's all kinds of evidence for this. You know, we proved to be among you. Chapter 1, verse 6, you became imitators of us. It was all about one life being lived in front of another, and now you do what I do. Oh, last night I watched my kids play on the Wii. What's that dance game? No, not Dance Revolution. 
Do you know what it is? I don't know what it's called. You hold the Wii, and on the screen, they're doing some uh, old songs or whatever you, you, you want from the 70s or disco era. And whatever the figure on the screen does, you have to dance it too. It's imitation. I'm watching my kids imitate exactly what's going on right there. It was a, it was a hideous imitation, but it was fun watching. <laughs> and that's what made me think of that when I said you became imitators of us. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> Thanks for clarifying the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so embarrassing. That's good. That's good. I'm moving on because it's only going downhill for me. You became an example to all the believers. Their lives became something visible to other lives. Um, He's talking about in chapter 2, verse 1, our coming to you. He's talking about the way that we entered into your life. Verse 2, you know. Verse 5, you know. Uh, We were gentle among you, describing the behavior and the, the manner they had while they were with them. We imparted to you our own lives, verse 8. You recall, brethren, verse 9. You are witnesses, verse 10. And and that we behaved toward you. He's concerned about the way that they lived their life before them. As you know, verse 11, he's concerned about each one of you. So, I mean, it's undeniable here, I think, from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, that if you're going to have a gospel-centered ministry, you need to open your mouth. And you must proclaim the word of God. You must proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, the wonderful gospel and all that it is. But you must also have a life that you're concerned to live your life among those that you are bringing the gospel to. You want to live your life out before them, with them, to them, for their benefit. You must connect your life to it, uh, to them. Uh, So proclamation, demonstration, that's what we mean by demonstration. Incarnation, that's what we mean. Because I think Paul did that uh, in a profound way. Jesus Christ, <coughs> Jesus came and he was a great preacher. And he, uh, nobody got closer to us than he did. Right? So, thoughts on, on this as we finish up Discipline 3? Do any of you have a, a sense of, of where you're weak, where you're strong? Do you like to open your mouth and it's more difficult to live your life before people or you do A-OK living your life among friends and relationships, but it's difficult to open your mouth. You need to work for a, a balance and a completion of those things. The gospel calls you to a balance in those things. Okay. What do you, what do you think about um, last question that I have on there that I, I would love for you to give some time for this as you evaluate your own life, but it would be great if you could help us evaluate even our own church. As a church family, how would you rate our church on this combination in regards to proclamation demonstration? Do you do you sense an imbalance someplace? I, I would hope if you do, you you'd, I mean, please feel free to tell us. That's helpful. Um, as we as we grow a little bit in, in size, um, we need to know how the body is growing and, and how it's living out the gospel and whether or not you, you sense not just a, an, a bunch of open mouths but you have a bunch of open hearts as well towards people um, you know, where are we strong where are we weak 
why do you think we, we might be weak in that area if we are? And um, what do you think must happen for, so that we can become stronger in that area? Be, help us get to the, be a part of the, you know, find the solution. That would be really helpful. Look forward to that discussion in small groups next time. Okay? Caesar, anything else? Tom or Scott, you guys got anything you want to add? Yeah, I think it's important um, not to be discouraged in this. Uh, we were talking about this at our table in our, uh, our time together this morning. Um, remember, it's so important for me to remember that uh, the grace that was purchased for me when Christ died for me on the cross is the very thing that enabled me to proclaim the gospel, and it's the very thing that enabled me to demonstrate So tempting to see this this large mountain is pretty challenging task in front of us, but God made it possible to do that by His grace. That's good. Jeff? Can I just hear an Old Testament verse that kind of, I think, is along the line with the verse you said here that blessed you this week, where it says God keeps calling? In Psalm 25, 14, it says, The Lord confides in those who fear Him. Guys, keep hanging in there, okay? You're in process. We all are. And we're all doing this together. And uh, the idea that this many men in the church are gathered together to think about these things um, is what we really want to be about and uh, keep pursuing. So let's do it together, okay? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time together this morning. Thank you for just how rich and deep your word is. And uh, Lord, we love to study it together. Lord, we, we want to grow in our pursuit of it when we're alone, when nobody's watching. But help us to remember that you are witness, that you see. Help us to live before you and to bring you, bring, bring into a greater awareness into our lives that you are watching us like a father. You're not our judge anymore. You are a father who wants to see your children grow. And Father, I pray that we would feed our hearts and our minds well this week with your words. So help us to be men who will do that. Father, we pray for those that live with us, that we live with. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to care for them out of the overflow of what is in our heart for you, that we got from your word, pray that they would feel and know um, that, that we are men who have humbled ourselves before you and have sought your face in Jesus Christ in the word of God. And Father, we pray that you would, as we have seen here, help us to open our mouths and, and bring the gospel to all who will hear it. Help us to demonstrate it in ways where we can really impart our lives to people. That means it's about relationships. So help us to form relationships with those that do not yet know you, all so that they might come to know you by your grace. So Father, thanks for our time together. Thank you for these men and the gift that they are to this church. Lord, we want to be good stewards together of one another's lives. Uh, for your sake, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. All right, guys, thanks for coming.